the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Or as uh, Jarrell was just mentioning before we came on the air here today, uh, Craig Roberts, the host with the most. I think that had... More to do with my uh, waistline than <laughs> anything else referring to... Uh, what's that again? I'm sorry. Thank you. <laughs> Sounds like Greg Edwards. How did he get into this? My goodness. Well, welcome to the uh, Wednesday edition of Lifeline. How are you? Trust you're having a good week so far. Made the uh, midpoint here and uh, had a talk with your boss. You've done so well this week that um, we thought we'd just toss in an extra little day off. So next Wednesday... Don't come into work. We're just going to give you the whole day off. Thank you. <laughs> and uh, But let's not get ahead to next Wednesday. Let's, uh, let's deal with this Wednesday, shall we? There's been some wonderful news. We mentioned this at the top of the program last night, um, taking place in the Supreme Court of late. One of the most uh, striking positive stories from a pro-life standpoint um, was word yesterday that the Supreme Court has struck down the California law mandating that pro-life organizations across our state essentially engage in propaganda on behalf of abortion mills. And it's a major win for First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. And so uh, we're going to talk a bit about the implications of this. There are other states that still have similar laws on the books. We think this decision now is going to wipe all that out as well, not just specifically uh, the California suit, which, of course, dealt just with the uh, the law here in California, but similar laws in other states, including Hawaii, that will no doubt now tumble as a result of the court's decision. Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee, will join us coming up later on in tonight's program to give us a complete report. You might have heard a federal judge today ordering the government to reunite migrant children and their parents who've been separated at the border. The ruling also halts the family separation policy that recently came under fire from both sides of the aisle. Under this decision, the government is now required to reunite children under five years old with their parents within two weeks. Children older than that will have to be returned to their parents within 30 days. President Trump signed an executive order last week ending the practice of separating families, but the administration so far has been slow to reunite children with their parents. And clearly, even within the language of this federal judge's decision, 30 days, you got to let the kids be separated from their parents for an entire month? That seems to be more than just mildly disturbing, particularly from a Christian perspective. And that's what we're going to spend some time talking about the start of tonight's program, and that is the idea of not Republicans' opinion or the Democrat or the right or the left, but God's opinion on the whole issue of immigrants and immigration policy. This is, and I'll say this at the very start so we get it out of the way, one of the most multifaceted, multilayered, complex issues 
confronting us today, probably in large part because following the last big push toward ref- um, uh, immigration reform back in the 1980s under the Reagan administration, essentially it has set. There have been as many Democrat administrations as Republican administrations that have done nothing to address the problem, and as many Democrats that have had chances to control the Congress as Republicans. Um, So it's been a a legislative issue. It's been an executive branch issue. And we're finding now the judicial branch having to come in and, and unwind at least some of this mess that has been created. But it is a complicated mess, no doubt about it. And yet it's one that we are compelled as believers to take a look at, not from a matter of personal opinion, but rather from the matter of God's viewpoint. We're going to spend some time trying to understand exactly what that is. We talk about a book called Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. And joining me now is its co-author, He serves as U.S. Director of Church Mobilization for World Relief, is also the National Coordinator of the Evangelical Immigration Table, and previously served as a Board of Immigration Appeals accredited legal counselor with World Relief's office located in Wheaton, Illinois. And Matthew Sorens, great to have you on the program. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, they, they say that there's um, several conversations you shouldn't have in a polite company or topics you should avoid. And, and historically, jokingly, people would say, don't talk about sex, politics, or religion uh, in mixed company because it all tends to lead to fights. And I guess we could almost add now uh, the fourth taboo, and that is don't talk about immigration either. Because inevitably, this turns to uh, people who either are uh, hot under the collar because they want to defend the sovereignty of the United States and the rule of law, or folks that are hot under the collar because they want to show compassion and concern and mercy for immigrants. And, if, you know, as it is, I guess, with a lot of complicated issues, it's not just simply black and white, is it? No, I think that's such an important way to set this up, because as you said, so often, you know, we end up in screaming matches, or at least we witness screaming matches on cable television with people from the extremes on this issue. But I actually think most Americans, and certainly most Christians, especially if we're taking the Bible seriously, we, we find that this is a nuanced issue. We do have scriptures that compel us to honor the law, to respect the governing authorities. We also have a whole bunch of passages in, in the Bible that would compel us to be compassionate to those who are vulnerable, and, and immigrants are specifically mentioned alongside orphans and widows in that category. You know, we have passages that tell us that God established the family, and you know, this recent issue with kids being separated from parents, I think that one's actually been a little bit easier for some people, that, yeah, we, we really don't want all children taken from their parents, when, you know, if we can avoid that. But this is a complex issue, and I think it's important to acknowledge that complexity so that we can look at it, first and foremost, as Christians, not just from a, you know, Republican Party platform or a Democratic Party or any other party, but say, what does the Bible say that could inform how we approach this, this tough topic? And that probably is the best place to begin from a scriptural and Christian perspective, and that is simply to say that, uh, yes, there are dynamics to this equation that are very political, but at the end of the day, when we talk about immigration, yes, it's political, but at the core, at the center, it's people, it's lives. 
We're not talking about nameless, faceless numbers that are sitting somewhere on the border that we can easily sort of with the wave of a wand say, you came here illegally, thus you shall return, and somehow that's just going to magically happen because, as we're learning, um, that seems to be the furthest thing from uh, the realm of of ease or simple possibility. And with that are tens of hundreds of thousands, and if you could I guess into the the conversation regarding the bigger picture of uh, illegal immigration and numbers vary. I've heard as high as 34 million and as low as 11 million. Maybe it's somewhere in between. Who knows? But we're talking about an awful lot of lives that are really at stake here at a lot of levels, aren't they? Yeah. And again, going back to scripture, I think you know, as I think about this issue biblically, I start in Genesis one, where it's every human being without any qualifiers being made in the image of God, and that means that those lives have dignity, dignity, they have worth. That's why we care about unborn children. It's also why we care about children, you know, at the border as part of families. And that doesn't mean that we ignore laws, but it does mean that we can't just dismiss people as unimportant or subhuman in some ways. Every single one of those individuals, however many it is, and both those who are unlawfully present, but also those trying to come lawfully or seeking asylum or whatever the case may be, their lives are important. And because they're made in the image of the Creator God, they also have potential. And I think that sometimes gets lost in our conversations around whether it's refugees or immigration more generally, we forget the potential that these people have to contribute, because like every other human person, they are made in God's image with that spark of the divine to, uh, yes, to consume things, but also to to consume, to contribute back. And we see that, you know, 40% of Fortune 500 companies in this country were started by an immigrant or their child. There's been a lot of contributions from immigrants over the years. Well, and, and I find that interesting. That's that's a good point to uh, to ponder because um, quite often those, at least in my experience, who seem to be the first to uh, regale against entitlement mentality and uh, you know you've got to work for it, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, are the very same people that tend to be most leaning toward, uh, while they won't acknowledge it uh, intellectually, nevertheless their conversation indicates that they seem to be very much of the belief that they are entitled somehow because they are Americans. And I find yeah. what's, what's interesting about this, uh, Matthew, is that many of the folks today that are second-generation Americans, including myself for that matter, had grandparents or great-grandparents that came here from a lot of these undesirable countries. Now, it's a different list today. I, I think in that cabinet meeting, the president referred to places like uh, uh, Haiti and uh, Nigeria, things of this sort. He used a pejorative term for uh, those uh, individuals coming from those countries. But it isn't that long ago that people that came here from Ireland and Italy and Poland mm-hmm. and Germany were branded the same way. And these are the same people that here today we say are the leaders of industry and of business and of politics and of the church. And I find it interesting that we, we somehow quickly forget about the fact that, you know what, unless we come from Native American roots, all of us are X-generation Americans. Yeah, such a good point. And again, even biblically, we see that theme. You know, in, in Exodus 23 and Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 10, God tells the Israelites to be kind to and to seek justice for immigrants who come into their land. And he gives them a reason. It's because they were foreigners in the land of Egypt. He basically says, don't forget your own history as foreigners in a foreign land and how you were treated. Not so that you can treat the people who come after you as bad as they treated your ancestors or the same as they treated you, but so that you can be better than that. You can be better than, than Pharaoh was to the Israelites. And I think, as you said, for almost all Americans, 
we have those immigrant stories, whether it's 500, 400, 500 years ago, or it was last week, you know, across the border, whether it's Ellis Island or on a slave ship, however we trace our roots. I think the challenge of Scripture would be to remember those stories, and, and to remember not only the good parts of those stories, that give me your tired, your poor, your teeming masses, but also the challenges that, as you said, you know, the Italians, the Irish, if you look at the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, it was a pretty horrendous law that was, you know, we would pretty much all now acknowledge had fairly racist roots. I mean, the Congress determined that the Chinese lacked sufficient brain capacity for democracy, like biologically, and that was the basis for that law. Now we don't want to reject that, but that's, you know, we have good and bad parts of our story, and frankly, the Church has been on good and bad parts of that as well. There's churches there in San Francisco who were at the forefront of welcoming and defending the Chinese in the 1880s and 90s, when many other Americans didn't want them. And part of that was they saw an evangelism opportunity as well. Well, I'm glad you bring that up, and we can touch on that a bit deeper when we come back after a time out, because one of the things that strikes me about this question of immigration, be it legal or illegal, in an area like the San Francisco Bay region, folks who live here know, uh, this is a cornucopia. Every tribe, every tongue from every corner of every part of every country across the world live here to one degree or another. It is perhaps the most golden missions opportunity ever because if you seek to reach the world, what better place to begin by practicing but right here at home where you can literally walk out your front door and find yourself in a community of people from India, from China, from Central America, South America, you name it. It's all right here. So I think that um, after we do a timeout here and get you updated on some traffic, we'll come back and talk more about what what seemed to be, in the minds of some, uh, a tremendous disadvantage, that in fact, from a, a world evangelism viewpoint, from an outreach viewpoint, is one of the greatest opportunities this nation has ever been handed, if we just don't mess it up. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Our visit today with Matthew Sorens, co-author of Welcoming the Stranger. Lifeline continues after this update. Traffic from Michael Bennett. Michael, what's up? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are not people who take children from mothers and fathers. That's not who we are. We are not people who believe immigration is bad because we are all immigrants. There is a Governor Cuomo from New York today commenting on the uh, judge's decision in this case regarding the um, gathering together or reuniting of these families that have been separated at the border. Welcome back to the conversation. Matthew Sorens, our guest, a look at welcoming the stranger, justice, compassion, and truth in the immigration debate. Um, Let's talk about the spiritual dynamic for a moment. Uh, Matthew, San Francisco Bay region in particular, and this is certainly not unique to the Bay Area, but perhaps um, um, more so here than anywhere else, is there such a divergence of languages and cultures and peoples from literally every corner of the earth in large percentages, enough so that somebody could virtually throw a map at any country in the world and say, I'm going to the San Francisco Bay Area, and I'm going to be ministering to these people, and you could keep yourself very, very busy. Are we perhaps in the midst of this debate and the confusion and sometimes the anger over immigration missing a broader spiritual opportunity here, the opportunity in recognizing that reaching people that are right here 
literally on our doorstep, can give us an opportunity to literally reach the world with ever, never having to pack a suitcase, get on an airplane, or have a visa. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you. And, and I actually do, I'm concerned that we might be missing that opportunity in large part because we've only thought about this so often, even within the church, as a political issue and not really as, a, as a, an evangelism opportunity. In fact, we commissioned some research from LifeWay Research a few years ago, and we asked self-described evangelical Christians sort of what they thought about immigration. A slight majority said something negative. It was a threat or a burden of some sort. And we didn't ask about legal status, just, you know, what do you think of the arrival of immigrants in your community? But only a minority said, you know, the arrival of immigrants presents an opportunity to introduce people to Jesus. And that, I mean, that's among evangelical Christians who kind of by definition would say, we want people to know Jesus. And here you have people coming from various countries, many of whom are already believers, but many of others of whom are not, and some of whom are coming from entirely unreached people groups, from parts of the world where they would be unlikely to ever hear the gospel in their country of origin. And, and if they did hear it, it would be illegal. It would, you know, they'd face severe consequences if they were to decide to follow Jesus. They come here to a context where we are blessed with religious freedom, where we are free to show our faith, and they were free to receive it or to reject it. And you know, and to be clear, we don't do proselytism at World Relief. We don't trick anyone into following Jesus or, or coerce them. But we do believe in, in being witnesses to who Jesus is. And our experience has been when it's a team from a local church who, for example, welcomes a refugee family at the airport. And over in Sacramento, it's actually our largest refugee resettlement site at this point uh, in the nation. We have families coming from various parts of the world. When it's a team from a local church who welcomes that family and befriends them and loves them as their neighbor, it's rare that sooner or later there's not going to be that question, that conversation of, well, why did you know why do you love us so much? Why were you there at the airport to help us? And then we get, as First Peter three says, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that's within us. And we have seen people make the decision again of their own of their own free will to begin following Jesus. And we think this that's just incredibly exciting. And but something I'm afraid that too often we miss out on as a church in the U.S because we've only thought about this as a political issue. And, you know, what's fascinating about this is one of the fastest-growing demographics of the evangelical church anywhere in the world today is coming from the Latino population. And that is true in particular here in the United States. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of quick, I think, sometimes to to judge them as, as alien and foreign, as if they're somehow coming here with a different language, a different culture, a different dress. And we forget, well, wait a minute, though. These people read the same Bible that we read. They worship the same God and serve the same God that we do. These are, in many cases, not all, but in many cases, we're talking about fellow believers here. Absolutely. And, you know, I spent a lot of time in Nicaragua before um, with, with my first role with World Relief. And, you know, there's such strong Christians in Central America in particular. I mean, it's a very Christian part of the world. And that's included among some of the young people arriving at the border right now, from El Salvador, from Honduras, from Guatemala. Many of these people are, are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I think you know, that gives special concern to me as we see them facing threats of violence and that sort of thing. You know, I just put themselves in my shoes. If I was in a desperate situation, forced to flee my country because my family was being threatened by gangs or, or, or by a terrorist group in other parts of the world, whatever the case may be, by corrupt government, I would sure love it if a brother or sister in Christ would be there at the airport, would be there at the border to help me get on my feet, to help me work through an, an awkward language barrier, perhaps, and help adjust to life in a new country. And I think that's the role of the Church. The Church has played that role historically in the U.S. for every wave of immigrants, and it's the role churches are playing today, and that's something we're really excited about at World Relief, helping um, to be a part of that process. But 
uh, we see that happening all over, but we also see that the opportunity is significantly greater than we probably see at the moment because I think this is so many people see this as a political issue and want to back away from it. Well, and I think perhaps part of that is because there is so much misinformation out there. It has been said, I won't say by whom, but you can guess. We don't know who these people are. We don't know where they're coming from. And then most of them that are coming here, and we've heard these numbers quoted, 95% are uh, people that have murder warrants out against their name, 75% are on most wanted lists, 66% of them that come to this country have births out of wedlock that U.S. taxpayers have to pay for, all of which is categorically top to bottom, completely misleading and false. It is the quote-unquote fake news of the day, and yet I think perhaps we are sometimes eager to buy into that because it fits the narrative. It's something that we we feel comfortable with, and I wonder if maybe the greater problem here is it's easy to accept the rhetoric because in many cases a lot of average Christians don't know there is no relationship that has ever allowed them to learn. If we put this in the context of calling a friend, for example, and saying, Charlie, I need your help. Uh, my my brother is a born-again believer. Um, he is being persecuted for his faith. His family is from a poor area. His children have no opportunities in education. Two of his kids are suffering from malnutrition. Wife cries herself to sleep every night. There's no money. The local area where they live is completely corrupt. There are no opportunities for jobs or education. And this man fears for his very life of his children. Would you mind taking them in? Most Christians that I know would say, absolutely, bring them on over. we got a spare bedroom. Let's see what we can do. How can we help out? And yet we don't typically respond that way when it comes to people coming here from other countries because we know the fake news side of the story. There's never been a personal relationship that's led us to see the truth that what I just described there is often the kinds of circumstances that people are fleeing from as they're making their way here to the United States. Yeah, uh, you're making the case better than I can, but that's absolutely you know, our experience at World Relief. And when we do help people facilitate those relationships, it changes people's perspectives so dramatically. And that that instinct towards Christian compassion comes out in beautiful ways that are that are mutually reciprocal. We see immigrants, refugees benefit from that, but also the you know, the American citizens who are part of churches welcoming folks. And, you know, that's really why we, we wrote Welcoming a Stranger, to put some human faces on this. So a lot of what we've done is shared some stories. Um, and then to address some of the ways you say there's so much misinformation and, and that's been true for a long time, but I feel like it has exacerbated maybe in the era of Facebook and Twitter and it's frankly it's very easy to share something that sounds sensational. And it's not true. And I think we need to be really careful as Christians who do believe in objective truth that we're not unintentionally slandering people by spreading information that it turns out is just completely inaccurate. I get things forwarded to me by email uh, that are, you know, I know to be false, but it doesn't stop them from coming, even from, you know, from relatives, from people I love and respect. But that sort of misinformation is very easy to click share or click send. But we have a responsibility to make sure that we are doing the homework to find out what the facts are. When we come back, let's talk about the legal aspects of this. Uh, the rule law of law is an important one, and a country is not a country without borders, and protecting the sovereignty of a nation is an important thing. So how do we balance that 
with this notion of, of compassion? How do we balance that when even the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, tells us to love the alien in the land? We'll come back to more of our conversation. A look at Welcoming the Stranger, co-author of this book, Matthew Sorens. This is Matthew, as we mentioned, is U.S. Director of Church Mobilization on behalf of World Relief. This time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. 5.30 right now, we swing back over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. We are visiting this this segment of the program with Matthew Sorens. Matthew is the co-author of Welcoming the Stranger, Justice, Compassion, and Truth in the Immigration Debate. And uh, this is one of those books that helps you cut through a lot of the fake news, false information, propaganda, and really get a balanced perspective on this, most importantly from a biblical viewpoint, which if you were with us for our program a couple of weeks ago at Abundant Life Christian Fellowship, this is at the core a part of what having a Christian worldview is all about. How do we see these questions from a biblical Perspective Now, Matthew, it's not unusual for me to hear people say, or self-professing believers, well, I'm compassionate and I understand that many of these people are coming here from horrible circumstances, but it's the law. And the Bible says that a nation has the right to have its laws. And even this question regarding the separation of parents from their children, I heard Jeff Sessions suggest the other day and even used a biblical reference from the book of Romans to, to say that essentially this is simply what the rule of law is all about. How do we answer that? How do we look at this equation from a compassionate side and yet also recognize that a country without borders is no country at all? Yeah, you know, I, I think that's a, a great question. And, you know, on one level, I, I disagree with the Attorney General's exegesis, if you will, of Romans chapter 13 in that I think most Christian theologians really across the theological spectrum would would think of it as a fairly simplistic interpretation to simply say whatever the government says is the law is just and right, we should enforce it. No well, exactly right. In fact, I had a call to this program when this came up. I said, okay, then on that basis, you as a believer feel that the current policy on abortion is okay, okay right? Because after right. all, that's the law. By the way, what about the issue of marriage, too? You're okay with the Supreme Court decision? Because after all, that's the law. We suddenly find ourselves now in this awkward position. We have to kind of pick and choose. Yeah. And in reality, if Romans 13 tells us uh, in, a, in a democracy, we're subject to the governing authorities. Part of our role and our responsibility is to uh, to speak out when we think the policies are not fair or just or right, whether that's on abortion or on immigration. And let me and, add, by the way, the governing authorities in this case is us. Yeah, exactly. We are self-governed nations, so we are the governing authorities. And, and, it, and I find it troublesome and disingenuous when I've heard some of my fellow conservatives and Christians and Republicans say, well, you know, this policy of separating kids, it took place under Barack Obama as well. Is this somehow to suggest that makes it right? Yeah, and I think it's really important that we speak out whether it happens under President Bush or President Obama or President Trump. And the reality is the law doesn't require the zero-tolerance policy that, that is new. That has has taken from did happen under President Bush, did happen under President Obama, but it expanded it on a much larger scale. Nothing in the law requires law enforcement to enforce that on every occasion. In fact, a friend of mine, David Iglesias, who was a U.S. attorney in New Mexico, he's a professor at Wheaton College now, he had a great piece the other day and, and basically said that zero tolerance sounds like a nice catchphrase, but it's a terrible policy. It, it's actually taking the discretion away from, from U.S. attorneys, from federal prosecutors, 
who need that discretion. The same way that a police officer has the discretion to give you a speeding ticket when it's appropriate and to encourage people to follow speed limits. But also, if someone's speeding to the hospital with a child in the back having a seizure, it would be not only uh, unreasonable, but quite cruel to you know, detain someone at that point and give them a speeding ticket. And I don't think any police officer would do that. That's the same way that under past administrations, the, the Department of Justice has used discretion when someone is seeking asylum, when there are children present. But I do think the, the Attorney General has a point in that the rule of law is important, and I want to underscore that, because I think some, even on the left, sometimes in the media, I've been asked, well, you know, hasn't Romans 13 been used to justify slavery or or the, the Holocaust? And it, it has, which means we should be cautious about its misuse. But that doesn't mean we tear the page out of the Bible and say the rule of law doesn't matter. God does establish governing authorities for a reason. And that's why, at well, the legal said for many years now is it should be harder to immigrate illegally but easier to immigrate legally. Uh, we need to get that balance right. Rather than looking the other way as the law is sort of selectively enforced, because our, our immigration laws are, I mean, they were mostly written in 1965, some updates in 1990, um, but most of our visa quotas are dramatically out of date with the needs of our market economy. Well, moreover, and, you have people that are in this country that struggle to find a decent job or are working multiple jobs. I mean, in, in spite of all the talk about how the great economy is doing, uh, in, in areas like the Bay Area, there are a lot of people that are challenged financially when it's considered to be low income to earn $117,000 a year if you have for trying to feed a family of four. Low income, 117000 a year. It's unbelievable. And then we say, well, we don't have enough people that can fill these positions, so we have to go to the outside and open up the H-1B visa program so we can bring in migrant workers so they can take over the high-paying jobs. There's never any debate or discussion about that, and I've long wondered why the EB-5 program that allows people to come in from other countries for simply writing a check for $500,000, bingo, instant green card, welcome to the United States. It seems as if there needs to be some discussion not only in terms of dealing with the the illegal immigration problem, but also the legal immigration problem, and the number of people that I've talked to who have said, it took me decades to come here because of all of the red tape and the paperwork and the money and what needed it, attorneys and back and forth and went. And to be honest with you, and I'm not making excuses for breaking the law, but I'll be honest with you, Matthew, there are some people that are in such desperate circumstances, they don't have decades to wait. If you've got a family that's, a family that's hungry and starving and you see an opportunity at a better life for your family, all you got to do is cross an imaginary line in the sand and nine times out of ten there's nobody there to watch you cross it. What person who says they love their family wouldn't take the same risks? Yeah, you know, I, totally, I, I think that it's when there's actually a sort of a trend right now towards restricting legal immigration. We actually had a, a a vote last week in the House of Representatives didn't pass, but got pretty close. That would have been a 40% cut in legal immigration. We've seen a cut in the refugee resettlement program in the last two years of about 60-65% overall in terms of arrivals from uh, you know really dramatic cuts. And my concern is when we make it harder to immigrate legally, which is already hard, it just gives people more incentive to overstay a visa or to cross the border unlawfully. And we're not condoning that. We're not affirming it. But we do understand it, as you say. The economic dynamics make a lot of sense, and especially when you add somebody fleeing violence, fleeing threats to their children's lives. My view has always been we should facilitate lawful migration, at least to meet the needs of, of our economy and also to keep families together, to, 
to be the, the place of refuge for the for a small share at least of those fleeing persecution around the world, which is you know we still have the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor. And at the same time, I'm for improving border security. I'm for systems to make sure that those who overstay a visa go back when they're supposed to. And then for those who are already here, who are, you know, in most cases have been here a decade or longer without legal status, whether they overstayed a visa or entered unlawfully, I'm not saying amnesty, they broke the law, it's forgiven and forgotten, but I also don't think mass deportation is either fiscally realistic or humane when you're dealing with literally four or five million U.S. citizen children and spouses who would be affected. So what we've said is, let's create that process where people can come forward, pay a fine. This is not amnesty that says a lot of the matter. It's, it's saying there's a penalty for breaking the law. But then if you haven't committed serious criminal issues, you'd be able to earn permanent legal status over a number of years if you can meet various requirements. And eventually, if you can pass that citizenship test in, of English and civics and history, and you want to be a fully integrated American, that would be on the horizon. It would be a possibility for those willing to work for it. Don't we also have to look at this and admit our own extreme failures. And I pose that question because um, I had a neighbor one time who uh, complained that they had been burglarized and jewelry had been stolen and things of this sort. And many people in the neighborhood felt very, very sorry uh, for the terrible thing that happened. And then we find out they were gone over the weekend. They left the side garage door, not just unlocked, but wide open. And the door from the garage into the house unlocked and wide open. And literally somebody just walked in. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if you at least put up the pretense to lock a couple of doors, maybe, maybe your complaints would seem right. Now, is it wrong to steal? Of course. But did they kind of set themselves up for it? Absolutely, they did. I wonder if we need to also come to terms with the fact that we've had a large and severe illegal immigration problem because we've done nothing to secure our borders. And I got to tell you, if the reverse were true, and we're talking about people, for example, trying to get out of North Korea, you know what the North Koreans know how to do? They know how to secure their borders. So I know it can be done. The other point of this thing is many of these people, particularly in Central America and in Mexico, are fleeing areas that have been taken over by drug cartels, the extreme violence and the number of deaths. I mean, we're, we're up into the near hundreds of thousands that have died in drug-related violence in not only some of the nice coastal towns in Baja, California, but along the U.S.-Mexican border. And you know what? In every case, these are drug cartels that are operating to export their drugs into where? The United States, where who's consuming them? Americans. So these are two big problems in my mind. Matthew, that really we have to recognize a huge percentage of the culpability in this problem is actually the fault of the of Americans. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree in large part, and especially in that you know we have historically not you know and again this is not just one party; it's both parties in power and both parties in power in Congress as well have really failed to solve this issue. I would note that we have, as a gov- our government has done a lot in the last decade or so, and again, this happened beginning under President Bush and continued under President Obama, continued under President Trump, has done a lot more to secure the border than was ever done in the decades before. To the point that uh, I actually think there's, you know, there's so many border patrol agents now, I believe really strongly we should have a secure border. But, I mean, if you look uh, in the last year, it was the lowest number of, of apprehensions at the U.S.-Mexico border of any year in the last 40 years. There's actually fewer people trying to arrive. It's up a little bit this year, but this year will still be in the, the lowest, four lowest out of the last 40 years in terms of apprehensions. And that's not because we're not, you know, no one's doing the apprehending. In fact, there was months last year when there was 
when the average border patrol agent apprehended less than one person on average in the course of a month. And the whole, you know, on a month's worth of work, because there's just not that many people arriving. And those who are arriving now are much more likely to be looking for the border patrol and saying, I want to apply for asylum. I have this well-founded fear of persecution. It used to be they were mostly coming from Mexico. Now they're mostly coming from El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala, which is a pretty significant shift, and it's a shift from economic-based immigration primarily to the majority of people saying, I'm afraid of violence, which, again, I also think we need to think of what can we do as a government, but also as the church, as individuals, to address those root causes that are that are making people feel that they have no choice but to flee in the first place. Well, a lot of the violence, again, goes back to, to uh, the drug trade, which, again, comes squarely back to the United States. Uh, the other interesting thing, too, in terms of culpability that we've never really fully addressed, and that is that uh, under the Clinton administration, we had an opportunity to strike a trade deal that really would have been a, a, a liberal trade deal with Central and South America that could have put Central and South America in the position of, of benefiting from U.S. trade. Instead, we did the trade deal with communist China. They're busy building nuclear weapons pointed towards us. Meanwhile, the economic crisis that continues in many South American countries is there because they're not most favored nation trade status partners with us the way China is. So, again, there are layers here where I'm just saying from a Christian perspective, we need to look at the big picture, and while it's easy to say, you're coming here illegally, I equate that with breaking into my house illegally, off with your head, you need to go back or go to jail, that's all well and good. But recognize that a big part of this problem, we have, in fact, stoked the fires for. Yeah, no, I think it's really important that we be honest about that and, and that we benefit from immigrant labor as well. I mean, there in Northern California, if you go out to the agricultural areas and look at who's picking grapes, who's picking you know, strawberries, who's harvesting a lot of the produce that we consume all across the United States, it's largely unauthorized immigrants. And we, we benefit from that in that you know, we all like affordable food, um, but you know, it's easy to, to benefit from that and then not fault the employers, not fault you know, the various other people involved, and only blame the people who are usually pretty desperate families coming from situations of fairly extreme poverty in other parts of the world. Yeah, and, and how many of us would say, hey, uh, gee, I've got to get a roof repair job done, but the contractor wants, you know, somebody tens of thousands of dollars, and somebody else says, a neighbor says, hey, I know somebody will do it for half that price, and we're instant uh, desirous to take advantage of the cheaper labor, labor, not recognizing for even a nanosecond that we're helping to contribute to the problem by doing so. Yeah. It's a fascinating book. It's an important book. It's one that begs the question, once again, from a Christian perspective, what are we going to do about this? And I, and I, and I realize you've heard largely a slant toward the welcoming the stranger viewpoint today, uh, largely from the, the uh, position of Deuteronomy 1019, to love the alien in the land. Uh, and I would say that's intentional in an effort to try and bring about balance, because we've heard so much within conservative circles, of the other side. And I think at some point we have to say or stop ourselves and say, wait a minute, at the end of the day, setting aside borders, sanctity of nations, rule of law, ultimately what is the most important point of this in the heart of God? That's the question that, first and foremost, we need to be asking ourselves. The book, again, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. It's called Welcoming the Stranger. It is published by InterVarsity Press. We thank co-author Matthew Sorens for being with us. Matthew, I'd love to get you back on the program another time. 
Yeah, I'd love to be back. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks again for your time today, Matthew Sorens. All right. Speaking of time, we're late, so let's get caught up here. And we do so first with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, as we welcome you back to the conversation, it was just a day ago that the U.S. Supreme Court, on a vote of five to four, ruled in favor of pro-life crisis pregnancy centers across the nation, most particularly in the state of California, arguing that a California law passed back in 2015, which required that centers, quote-unquote, inform clients about free or low-cost abortion services, ultimately was a violation of free speech. Here with comment is Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Certainly, Brian, welcome relief in this Supreme Court decision. It really is, Craig, and I think that uh, I'm actually at the National Right to Life Convention right now in Kansas City. But this is hugely significant on a number of levels for California. And we have to remember that in our form of government, the Supreme Court has, in a sense, stepped in and, and protected us from the rather oppressive laws created by our legislature. And what I have to remind listeners is that, yes, we celebrate what the court has done. And by the way, today's decision about uh, Anthony Kennedy retiring is also of great significance. But what we always have to remember, we don't want to think like our opponents do. Our form of government is not about a supreme tribunal that's going to do everything for us. And that's the problem for us as Americans. i got to tell you, I think it's the problem for the church. Christians think that, well, it's the Supreme Court will fix everything, and as long as they do it, then everything will be fine, they'll finally fix it. Basically, what's going to happen, it comes back to us. And literally, the same people who made this law, they were told at the time it was unconstitutional, by the way. They knew fully what they were doing. They had a complete agenda that they were going to force this anyways and force this speech onto California citizens. They're paying for abortions now with your tax money. They have an ideology they want to put into place. This may be overturned, but they're still in office. They're meeting in Sacramento as we speak. They're going to go into recess on, on July 6th and take a summer break. They're going to come back on August 8th for the last three weeks of the two-year cycle. They're going to be dealing with the worst bills that I've ever seen in, in August. And we want to remind listeners, we want to remind Californians, particularly pro-life Californians, you need to follow what they're doing. You need to stop them before they strike again, to be honest. And in uh, August, if I can mention this, we're going to have our California Pro-Life Conference and Lobby Day, August 8 and 9, when they return from their vacation. Again, these are the same lawmakers that passed this law. Well, and this is, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up, Brian, because it's an extremely important point for Californians, even as we revel in the Supreme Court decision yesterday, that it is, as Brian points out, SCOTUS correcting a problem that, quite frankly, should have never allowed to exist in the first place. Let me quote. The California Attorney General, Javier Becerra, who 
in an attempt to try and defend this law before the Supreme Court on the backside said, and I quote, the Reproductive Fact Act ensures that women in California receive accurate information about their health care options, including whether a facility is licensed medical provider. The California Department of Justice will do everything necessary to protect a woman's, a woman's health care rights, close quote. And apparently that's everything to protect the rights uh, with the exception of First Amendment rights. But it, it, it goes to the heart of the mentality of this. And you're absolutely right. While we revel in the Supreme Court decision yesterday, uh, it also means that there's a problem here and a very severe one in California that still remains to be fixed. That's right. And remember, they're using this language, they're true believers. And if you haven't seen the turn now in this cultural, we're in a cultural war, it's a war of ideas. And often, as, as Javier Becerra literally there, he never mentioned the word abortion there. He didn't describe what they're really doing. You know, they use code words. They don't talk about what an abortion is. They talk about, oh, it's choice. They don't describe what happens. And that's Orwellian. And yet they're forcing this with your government money. You've got to be involved in the battle of ideas. If you're not involved in the battle of ideas, then you're laying down one of the most important responsibilities. Ideas are spiritual things. Let's face it, that's what an idea is. It's a spiritual thing. And if you decide, no, it's too complicated for me, you're setting aside one of your principal responsibilities in the spiritual realm, is to understand this battle that's, that's surrounding us constantly. And it is a battle for lives. And if you get involved... You have to learn how these ideas work. And in our system of democracy, we're given an opportunity. So we want to encourage you to learn how this works. In August, when they come back, they're going to need to listen. And I want to remind you that if they don't see the light, one of your responsibilities is to make them feel the heat. Because in November, a mere three months later, you can vote for them whether you want them to be in office. That's how freedom works. But if we don't understand that, if we think, oh, well, we need a Supreme Tribunal to always save us, the Supreme Court, again, that's how our opponents think. The Supreme Court's going to make things happen, and it's just going to force things on everybody. That's not how America has been designed. We also have to remember, if we see what's happening with Maxine Waters, by the way, Maxine Waters, she's in the news a lot. She was an assemblywoman for many years. In 1985, she yelled at me at a hearing exactly in the same way she's doing it now. She hasn't changed. But what has changed is this, is that's become much more common, where literally, I understand the ACLU is considering, and these are statements made recently, free speech is not helping progressivism. They are willing now to walk away from the concept of free speech if those ideas go against their ideology. So this is a very serious time we live in. And if we don't prayerfully wake up to being involved in our, in our sphere, in our community with our elected representatives, then we're going to surrender this. And we can't expect the Supreme Court to fix everything. If we're going to be participatory Americans, we need to be involved in the process. And it's right there for us. So I do want to invite people to come in August. It's a, it's a hot time in, 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 in Sacramento, I know. But you want to, let's bring the heat to our legislators. 
Isn't yeah, it? I absolutely agree with you on that point, and uh, and I like what was the the adage he used: uh, uh, if they don't see the light, let them feel the heat. Absolutely, and and again, we need to be mindful that the SCOTUS decision is a wonderful victory. But we need to quickly move to solving the long-term problem. The long-term problem is the kind of individuals that we continue to send to Sacramento. And so we need to be involved in that process. That means an election coming up in November. That means communicating to our members of the California State Legislature as they return from their summer recess in August. Details available, californiaprolife.org, californiaprolife.org. We thank Brian Johnston from taking a moment outside of the uh, National Convention to give us that quick update and a bit of a look at the Supreme Court decision again yesterday, a 5-4 to four vote. Ruling in favor of California, sorry, ruling in favor of pro-life crisis pregnancy centers that turned down a law passed in California in 2015, which had required the centers to essentially engage in propaganda on behalf of Planned Parenthood and abortion clinics across the state. So that's very good news. Thanks again to Brian Johnston, National Regional Director, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. All right, you got me so excited about the fair tickets here, Jarrell. I'm I'm getting all uh, discombobulated here. So you said we're giving away, we're giving away 24 two packs. No, 44. No, we're giving away two four packs. Is that right? Okay, two four packs to callers number 1,112. Trying to read my. Yeah, they're trying to read my writing. Oh, one, oh, callers 11 and 12. Can't read my writing here. Okay. Well, the Alameda County Fair, of course, is uh, continuing now through July the 8th. They've got a big new ongoing concert series featuring a lot of well-named stars. And, of course, you can enjoy monster trucks, extreme rodeo. There's a demo derby, freestyle, motocross, and more all going on now through the 8th at the Alameda County Fair. Details on the web at alamedacountyfair.com. Now, we're going to give away some tickets. We've got two family four-packs, right? So two of you will receive four tickets. That's a total of eight tickets split amongst the two of you. 888-367-5329. They'll be so confused. <laughs> Most of all, you'll be confused. You've got to deal with all this. 888-367-5329. 888-FORKFAX. Callers number 11 and 12. You're going to the Alameda County Fair. 888-367-5329. 888-FORKFAX. Callers 11 and 12 win. Charge. Oh, take out the charge card. Let's, can you buy a new talk show host online? Maybe Amazon can ship us one because, boy, I'm, telling, I'm having a rough time here today. All right, let's get a look at traffic, shall we? Let's see how rough it is out there on your ride home this Wednesday. The latest with Michael Bennett. Michael, what's going on? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.